0: Right, Emmaus, thank you for being a church that sings out. Thank you for being a church that when you show up, you want to participate, that your heart and mind and body is engaged in worship. I can't tell you what an encouragement that is to me and for us to be able to have Dustin here today stepping in, uh, leading with us. Thank you for doing that. Um, now as we think about studying God's Word, Daniel chapter 8, we are making our way Through the book of Daniel, a few weeks left to go in in this study. If you're new with us this morning, if you're a guest of ours, I would love to meet you after the service, hear about God's work in your life, answer any questions you might have, just just pray with you. If you want some more information uh, about our church, just text OKC to 77411, and I'll get that information and reach out to you. But I would love to meet you in person this morning as well. If you're watching online, uh, connect with us there in the Facebook comments and and we'll reach out to you that way as well. We're just thankful that you're here. And I know when you come to a church service and maybe you're jumping into the middle of a sermon series and you haven't known what's going on up to this point, it can be hard to kind of catch up with what's happening. Even if you've gone through the whole Daniel series, you're like, where are we in this process? I want to show you a video overview of the book of Daniel that, that I appreciate, I think it's really well done, just to give the shape of Daniel. And then after that's finished, we're gonna look at Daniel chapter eight. Watch this video thinking about what is the book of Daniel about, and then specifically we're gonna look at Daniel chapter eight this morning. Watch this video for just a couple of minutes.
1: The book of Daniel the story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, whose later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters two through seven are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters two and seven for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse and they choose faithfulness to the Torah and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first the king of Babylon has a dream that it turns out only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings. The father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions. Which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn, who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the son of man who's an image for both God's covenant people but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden God who's called the ancient of days comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the son of man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations but they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7 but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is an image of the empire of the Medes and Persians and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms, it's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense, they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about.
0: All right, so as we get to Daniel chapter 8, kids, I'm going to need your help here in just a second, okay? So prepare yourself. Summer. Think about summer. A lot of people go on road trips in the summer. Now, some of you have perfected the staycation. You don't road trip anymore. You just vacation right here. You stay right here. Some of you are so glad to have your airline ticket back, and you don't want to drive anywhere. You have no interest in driving anywhere. You just want to fly. But some of us love road trips. Like, if you said, hey, Owen, take this stack of books and deliver it to those kind people in Montana, and you have to drive there, I would be the happiest person you've ever seen. Like, I, just the idea of going on a road trip. Now, now, road trip is cool if you're the one driving, if you're the one monitoring the rest of the people in the car, the road trip is sometimes less cool. And kids, what do you guys say when you go on road trips? You say, are we there yet? Okay? So kids, here's where I need you to practice for your, any vacations you're going on. I want to hear your best whiny Are we there yet? All right, so this can be little kids, teenagers, adult kids. Whoever wants to participate has a chance to participate. You're going on a road trip. You don't know if you're ever going to get there. So on the count of three, I want to hear your are we there yet. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Yes, that sounds so familiar. Wonderful. Are we there yet is actually Really good biblical theology question. Have you ever gone through a period of life that you wondered, is this ever going to end? Have you ever gone through anything in your life that you thought, are we there yet? Are we ever going to get through this? An illness that you didn't think was ever going to end? Maybe you're caring for a family member or a friend and it's wearing on you in a way that's so hard to describe to other people. Maybe you're looking for a job, or you're waiting on the baby to come, or you're waiting on the relationship to show up, or you're waiting on this season of life to pass, and you wonder to yourself, is this ever going to end? Are we there yet? How long, O Lord? Daniel chapter eight, verse one. In the third year, Of the reign of King Belshazzar, one of the last rulers of the Babylonians here, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So he's saying, I had this vision in chapter 7 of these four beasts, but I'm having another vision, and the visions are connected. See Daniel as an interconnected book here. Verse 2, and I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was in Susa, an area in southwestern Iran, Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now the only point I'll make on this verse is notice that in chapter 7, the vision was very heavenly and very symbolic and very strange. In chapter 8, it's going to become much more localized and much more on earth that these things are happening. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram was standing on the bank of the canal. This ram had two horns, and I'll just tell you right now, these horns, we're going to find out from the angel Gabriel later in the chapter, represent this dual Medo-Persian empire, And, and one of the horns, it says, was higher than the other. The Persian empire was more prominent, and the higher Came up last. So the Persian Empire emerges as the stronger, and they combine these two empires together. Verse 4 I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Notice that phrasing there, friends. The empires of the world who are opposed to the way of God, they are characterized as those who do whatever they want to and seek to become great. When you're thinking about a kingdom of the world that's opposed to the ways of God, it's a feeling of, I'm going to do whatever I want to. This human autonomy. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the previous generation says. I don't care what my parents say. I'm going to do whatever I want to, and I'm going to become as great as I can. If that sounds familiar, it's because we live in that kind of world. I'm going to do whatever I want to and become as great as I can. And this is how this kingdom is described here. Verse 5. As I was thinking about this, Daniel says, Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now we're going to find out from the angel Gabriel that this is the kingdom of Greece. And extra points, if you can work the word conspicuous into everyday conversation this week. Uh, I don't know when the last time was you used the word conspicuous. It's a word that means notable or prominent, something that's clear to see here. So this kingdom, this Greek kingdom is going to come from the west. And it says in verse 6, he came to the ram. So this goat comes to the ram "'with its two horns, which he had seen standing on the bank of the canal, "'and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. "'I saw the goat come close to the ram, "'and he was enraged against him, "'and struck the ram and broke his two horns. "'And the ram had no power to stand before him, "'but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, "'and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power.' Then verse eight, the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up on four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. All right, let's stop and make sure we know what's going on here. What this image is, the Medo-Persian kingdom had set themselves up in this part of the world, but here comes the Greek kingdom from the west. And the Greek kingdom was led by a man named Alexander the Great. So pick up your history classes that maybe you've forgotten for a long time. Here comes Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is the little horn that is rising up here with all of this power. But then Alexander is cut off early in his life at the age of only 32. And Alexander's kingdom is divided between four different rulers. This is how history worked out. This is Daniel giving this prophecy years in advance, and this is the way it worked out in history. These four rulers called the Deadekoi rose up after Alexander the Great. Two of them became very prominent, and you need to know this to help make sense of the way your Bible works and the way prophecy works. There was one ruler, Seleucus, who had the area in the north. Think modern-day Syria, Think that area north of the Holy Land? And there was another ruler that followed Alexander who was called Ptolemy. And Ptolemy had the area in Egypt, south of the Holy Land. So you had these two rulers after Alexander the Great that were coming into this area, and they began to have power, especially this ruling group in the north, in Syria, in Seleucia, this area to the north, they had a lot of power. Look what happens in verse 9. Out of one of them, and what he's going to refer to is this northern group that took over after Alexander the Great. Out of one of these four came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. This little horn that rises up here is a figure from history called Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was one of the rulers up in this northern area, and he was even given the nickname Epiphanes, an appearance of the gods. This ruler became great, not only in his power, but also in his own mind. Uh, He had the ultimate little man syndrome. He's this little ruler who thinks that he is like God. Verse 10, "...this little horn grew great even to the host of heaven, even up into the stars." And some of the hosts and some of the stars this little horn threw to the ground and trampled on them. Now Daniel, in his dream here, is using hosts and stars of heaven not only to refer to the stars, but it becomes dual imagery for angels and then ultimately for the people of God. So when you see these hosts being thrown down, it's a sign that there's spiritual warfare going on here, and this spiritual warfare is going to result, here's the key, in the people of God being attacked. Verse 11, this ruler, this this horn, this little horn, Antiochus IV, became great, even as great as the prince, as, as the priest of the host, as the ruler of the host of God. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now, I know that's just one little verse in the Bible, but there is so much history packed into that little verse. What happens in history is in the year 167 B.C., Antiochus begins to outlaw the practice of the Jewish faith. The Jewish Sabbath is set aside. He outlaws being able to follow the Jewish laws And famously, Antiochus comes in and sets up an idol in the temple and then sacrifices a swine on the altar. And if we know anything about the people of the Jewish faith at the time, the idea that a swine would be sacrificed would be the ultimate punch in the gut. The idea that the temple of God would be used in this way, and it becomes not a temple to the creator God, it becomes a temple to Zeus. It becomes a temple to their God and is used in this very sacrilegious way. And Antiochus sets up his power in God's temple in this way. Well, three years later, there's a Jewish leader, a Jewish man named Judas Maccabeus. Uh, His nickname was the Hammer. If you need to give anybody a great nickname, just go with Hammer. Uh, So Judas was the Hammer, and he came in and led a group of people who opposed Antiochus and ultimately brought back the temple. And they cleansed the temple, and this is the holiday that you probably know as Hanukkah. When the temple was restored, when things were made right again and the Jewish people were put back in this place, all of that is happening with this one little verse here in, in Scripture. Verse 12, verse 12, what happens? We know that the people of God at this time, when Antiochus is ruling, they will be given over to this little horn, together with the regular offering because of the sins, and it will throw truth to the ground and will act and prosper. What do we know about the pattern of the kings and the rulers at this point. I wanted you to see what's happening here with the pattern that Daniel's giving us. When worldly kingdoms set themselves up against God, it's not just a battle in this world, it's a spiritual battle. And let me just remind us of that this morning because sometimes in day-to-day life, this gets lost. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle. And to think otherwise misses everything that's going on around us. Daniel, in his dream, is reminding us that what is happening is not just happening here on earth. That there are spiritual realities at work. And when worldly kingdoms set themselves up to be opposed to the way of God. Can you guys jump to that next slide that kind of gives this pattern? There's a spiritual battle happening. It's not just physical. That the kingdoms of this world are prideful that they set themselves up against the people of God, saying, we're going to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. And the kings of this world are known as those who are deceitful, who lie on purpose to gain power, and who are destructive, who will run over anything and everything in their path to get the power that they want. This is the image that Daniel sees in his dream, How does Daniel respond to this in verse 13? Look at this phrase. Underline this phrase, circle it, look at it here in verse 13. In the middle of this, Daniel heard a holy one speaking, an angel of the people of God. Another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning this regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Notice that phrase there. How long? How long is this going to last? Because Daniel realizes in this dream, what is being prophesied is not good for his people. His people are going to go through some hard years. They're going to face incredible difficulty, and they are going to find themselves asking, how long, O Lord, is this going to last? And this is the question you probably ask in your own life. How long, oh Lord? How long is this situation going to last? How long is this illness going to last? How long is this family drama going to last? How long is this job search going to last? How long are we going to go through the suffering that we're going through right now? How long? Verse 14. A strange answer. Really strange answer. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings... Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, up to this point, we know there's a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism in the book of Daniel when it comes to these numbers, and it's no exception right here. And there's a lot of controversy among Bible scholars about what in the world does it mean that there's going to be 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored? One option is, is that evening and morning just stands for a day. And so 2,300 represents 2,300 days, which is just less than seven years, between six and seven years. Or 2,300 evening and morning offerings, an evening and morning offering were offered each time in the sanctuary. So maybe you divide that in half and it's about three and a half years that this will be happening. That's probably the more common of the explanations here that he's talking about around three and a half years that this will happen. Here's the key point, though. Daniel is saying, or he is receiving a vision that says, what's going to happen to you will be a significant but absolutely limited amount of time. Don't miss that, okay? Daniel's people are going to face difficulty. Daniel himself is going to face difficulty. How long is it going to last? Well, he gets this strange symbolic number that it is going to be a significant amount of time, but down to the day, God has it limited. This is going to be hard, but God is in control of it down to the very day. Now, jump over at the end of chapter 8, and look at chapter 8, verse 27. After Daniel gets the interpretation from Gabriel, look at chapter 8, verse 27, of how Daniel responds to this. He gets the news, and he says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. One of the things that reinforces for me over and over over just kind of a deep trust in God's word is how realistic scripture is about living in this world. Have you ever received news and all you could do was just lay in bed feeling sick about it for days? You receive some type of report or some type of news and it just makes you sick. You don't even know how to respond. You don't even know that you can pull yourself out of bed because of what's going on in life. Daniel finds himself there. He is run over by the news that he gets here. And on top of that, look at what happens at the end of verse 27. I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Friends, part of living in this world is not fully understanding everything that goes on. And man, that's hard. When you face things and you don't fully understand it, when you see things going on in the world and you don't fully understand it, a lot of life is living with limited knowledge. A lot of life is living with, I don't completely understand everything that's happening here. But look at the middle of that verse. What does Daniel do? After he lay in bed sick over the news, he rose and went about the king's business. Yes, this is going to be hard. No, I don't understand everything that's happening right now. But I'm going to get up and do what's right in front of me. And man, what an act of faith that is when you're facing suffering, when you don't understand what's happening, when you don't know how long it's going to last to be able to get out of bed and say, I'm gonna do the king's business. Now in here, he obviously means doing what Belshazzar has set him up to do, but I think there's some purposeful irony going on here. As he does the earthly king's business, he's ultimately doing the greatest king's business. He is doing what God has called him to do. And when you're facing suffering and you're facing difficulty, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with everything you have as working for the Lord, not for man. When you face difficulty, when you don't understand what's going around you, just being faithful to your job, being faithful to your family, carrying on with life is an incredible picture of faith. And I want to say this next part very carefully, because suffering comes in every imaginable form, and and we deal with it differently When you find yourself run over by news that comes to you, or you find yourself struggling, is this season of life ever going to pass? Sometimes we need a good friend who we trust to come along and get us out of bed and say, you have business in front of you that God has called you to do. Now being drug out of bed by somebody you don't trust usually doesn't go well. If that news comes at the wrong time, it's hard to receive. But we need someone who says, come on, we have business to do that God has given us, and I know life is hard, and no, I don't understand this, and no, I don't know how long this is going to last, but we gotta get up and keep going. What's the best picture for understanding this in the Bible? The best picture that I know of comes in 1 Peter, chapter five. If you would, turn to your Bible, scroll on your phone, into the New Testament, almost to the very end of the New Testament, 1 Peter, chapter five. The more I've studied Daniel, over the last few months, the more I see connections between Daniel and First Peter. Man, those books are tied together. As you think about Daniel in your mind, in your Bible, connect it to what's happening in the book of First Peter in the New Testament. Because in First Peter, you have a group of people that are in exile. They're, they're away from the land, and they're undergoing all kinds of suffering, and Peter is writing to them about how to be faithful. So here's what I want you to have as we go home today. When we live in a broken world, and when you face those events in life that you think, I don't know how I'm going to keep going, how do you maintain faith? How do you keep going? How do you get out of bed and do the king's business? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Man, write those verses down this week. Put them somewhere where you can memorize them. Meditate on them. Chew on these verses this week. How beautiful it is. Remember what got the earthly kings in trouble in the book of Daniel that they were prideful? What are the people of God called to do? We're called to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And what I love about these two verses is the picture of God's character that you get in these verses. God has a mighty and strong hand to defeat every enemy that comes against us. And he cares deeply for you. A God who is powerful but doesn't love, what kind of God is that? And a God who is all-loving but has no power to deal with sin, what kind of God is that? What God do we find, though? A God who we humble ourselves Before his mighty hand, and we cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Just for a second, can I ask you a question? Are you holding on to any anxieties and cares in your life that you have refused to give to God? You're carrying around this weight, you're carrying around this anxiety and care, and pridefully, if you were honest about it, pridefully, you're trying to hold on to that. And God is saying, give it to me. I am mighty to deal with it, and I love you, and I care for you. And as the people of God, when you are going through a situation you don't understand, and you don't know how long it's gonna last, friends, do not carry that weight with you. You cannot carry that on your own, that we cast it on him because he cares for us. This would be like your kids not coming to you with a problem because they don't wanna burden you. As a parent, you wanna say, Burden me. I, w- I don't want you to carry that alone. Come to me because I care for you. Our Heavenly Father says the same thing. Look at the next verse. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Don't be dumb with your life. Pay attention to how you live. Be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. When you're walking through long seasons and hard events... You are susceptible to temptation at that point. You're susceptible to doubt God's goodness, to get distracted by all the cares of the world, to give your life to things that don't matter. Friends, stand firm in those times. And in the middle of verse nine, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Sometimes what gets us through difficult seasons of life is just knowing we're not alone. When you go through a difficult season of life, and you get news that you didn't want to get, and you don't know how you're going to make it through this, that is not the time to isolate yourself. More than ever, you need the people of God. More than ever, you need the church. 1 Peter 5 begins with the gift of, of humble leadership in the church, and then it reminds us that we are connected to all believers around the world. You are not alone in your suffering. You have people who care for you and want to walk with you through the middle of that season. Do not isolate yourself. Do not back away from God's gift of the church during that time. And then finally, last verse this morning, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, and man, it doesn't often feel like a little while. It feels like a long time. Uh, what 2 Corinthians 4 calls our light and momentary troubles don't often feel light and momentary. They, they feel hard, like they're never going to end. But it says here, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you, The God who upholds the world, who is ultimately faithful, will be faithful to carry you through whatever you are facing right now. And let the word eternal be stronger than anything you're facing right now. God's eternal weight of glory far outweighs anything we face right now. So we set our attention not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what we see with our eyes is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And when you find yourself asking, how long is this situation going to last? How long is this season of life going to endure? It is so short when you put it in contrast to eternity. When we have the perspective of eternity, it changes everything about the way we face the problems of today. And so from God's word this morning, I want you to be reminded that you can cast your cares on the Lord because he is mighty and he cares for you. I want to remind you to stay connected to the people of God. Don't draw away from people when you go through hard seasons. And friends, remember that God is faithful. And because of Jesus, we have eternal hope. And if you're here this morning, and you say that sounds like good spiritual language, and I'm glad you're trying to give people hope, Owen, but... I'm not sure I buy into that. Can I remind you this morning that when we talk about eternal hope this morning, this is not something we're talking about based upon ourselves or something we've tried to make up. Our eternal hope is based on who Jesus is and what he has done. And this morning, I want you to know that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose again to defeat death and every enemy that sets itself up against you. And so this morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you don't know that you have eternal hope, if you have no idea how you're going to get through this season of life on your own, your hope is Jesus Christ. I would call you to trust in him. I want to pray for us. After I pray for us, we're going to stand up and sing a final song about where our hope is found. I'm going to be down here at the front. We're going to have someone else down here at the front to pray with you. If you're going through a how long, no oh Lord, season, are we there yet? Am I ever going to make it through this? We want to pray with you. If you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, we want to pray with you. Let's use this time of response to commit ourselves to the Lord. Let me pray for us. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you don't know your eternal hope, if you don't know how you're even going to make it through today, much less tomorrow, can I ask you right now to pray to God and say, God, I realize that on my own I'm never able to overcome sin and death, the brokenness of my life and the world. My only hope is that Jesus died on the cross to defeat the power of sin. And God, I believe that you rose Jesus from the dead to defeat the power of death and darkness and pain and suffering. And this morning, I put my faith in you. If that's your prayer, don't leave this room without talking to someone letting someone know about your desire to trust in Jesus for salvation. You can come down front during this song, talk to us afterward. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're in the middle of a season of life that feels like it's never going to end, you're caring for a family member, you're going through an illness, you're searching for a job, you're just just stuck in life and can't see the next step. Maybe facing graduation in a new season of life, or retirement in a new season of life. Can I remind you that God loves you? Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Don't carry that weight anymore. Father, thank you for your goodness. And with this song and this time of prayer, God, we commit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.